Well, take your Bible and open it to the Gospel of John. We begin studying that book last week, and we want to return to it this week and, uh, and start the exposition of John chapter 1. So take that Bible, open that Bible, and I'd like to read the text for you this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. 1 through 5, 1 through 18 is a unit. We're going to call that here before us the pronouncement of the Son of God. Some people call that the prologue, but let me read those opening five verses for us, an incredible section of Scripture. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. May God bless his scripture. Let's pray. Father, we just bow here just in our hearts, in our minds, asking that you illuminate our hearts and minds to understand the scripture. May the spirit give us the wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him that's revealed in the word of God that we might be a people that see you clearly. And we'll pray this in Christ's name. Amen. James Boyce asked the question, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Who is he? I mean, this is the most important question that you or anyone will ever have to face. It is important because it is absolutely inescapable, and you will have to answer it sooner or later, in this world or in the world to come. I mean, there's no question that your eternal destiny depends upon your answer to who is Jesus Christ. And so I begin just by asking you that question, who is Jesus Christ? What does the Bible say about the person of Christ? Now, as we come into John's gospel, we're looking at this always within the paragraphs. And what you have is a paragraph here in 1-1 down through verse 18. We can call it there from our outline last week, the pronouncement of the Son of God. And the opening paragraph of John's gospel contains one of the greatest statements ever uttered in the entire universe. Really. I mean, you're reading this morning one of the greatest statements, if not the greatest statement ever spoken in any human language. Because John states in emphatic terms that Jesus Christ is God. And he's going to say this from a number of different angles in this pronouncement, 1, 1 through 18. Now, I won't take the time because we'll let the exposition do that. In essence, what you have in 1, 1 through 18 is really the synthesis of all of John's gospel here. In fact, the rest of John's gospel elaborates on 1, 1 through 18. Now, these opening five verses provide for us, we'll get right to it, three declarations of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? 
three declarations of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Namely, when I say deity, he is God in the flesh. And we'll look at those three declarations just by the identification of a single word, okay? We'll look at his preexistence in 1, 1 through 2. Then secondly, his omnipotence in verse 3. And then I'm going to say it this way, his aseity in 1, 4 through 5. And I'll explain his aseity to you. So we've got his preexistence, his omnipotence, and his aseity. Three declarations of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I've titled the message, Our Incredible Lord. But let's go right to the text. His preexistence. His preexistence. Look at the word again in one one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, as we look at that statement there, John obviously is establishing a link here in one one with the first words of the Old Testament scriptures, and namely this gospel. The opening phrase, in the beginning was the word, on John's gospel, echoes the words, does it not, in Genesis 1.1, where Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John opens the New Testament, in the beginning was the word. And so not did he create the world, but in the beginning was the word. Now, look at the phrase here. This is an important passage of Scripture. Look at that opening line. It says there, in the beginning. That word there is the Greek word arche, and it could either mean source or origin, okay? The source of something, the origin of something, or it could be describing a ruler or the ideal of authority or to rule, okay? Either way. Now, both of those aspects, either source and origin or the ideal of rule and rulership, could be appropriately said to speak of the life of Jesus Christ. He is the source of life. He is the creator of the universe, as we'll see. But he's also the world's Lord and ruler. But I think here in this context, from the text itself, arche, or the word for beginning, is referring to the beginning of creation as seen in Genesis 1.1. There again, that phrase, in the beginning, God. And now, as he writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he says, in the beginning was the Word. So what John does, kind of different, is it not in Matthew's Gospel, skips over the genealogy, okay? And he reaches even back before his earthly ministry. He reaches back, does John here, before the virgin birth. He goes back even before the creation itself. In John's mind and heart, as we read from the Scripture, he goes back into eternity to God's agent in the creation of the world, the one whom is the light and life of the world. And here is John's starting point in the gospel. John says, in the beginning. Now, now look what he says there. Look down in the Scripture. Very important, and I don't mean to micromanage this text, but if I don't, it leaves questions, and you don't see the brilliance of it. But he says in one one in the beginning, and then he uses this word, was, was, okay? 
In other words, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, already existed before the heavens and the earth were created. So in the beginning was. In other words, we understand God has no, be- no beginning He is not a created being, and whatever existed prior to creation is eternal. And in like manner, Jesus Christ does not have his origin at creation. He already, here's the word, was. And so in the beginning, Jesus already was. Jesus existed Jesus Christ, beloved, the Word of God tells us, has existed from all eternity. Now, certainly we're going to come to that powerful statement, glance down in verse 14, that the Word became flesh, yes, and dwelt among us, but He wasn't just born there. The second person of the Trinity, in the beginning, even before the world was created, Jesus Christ was. It's interesting there, the word was is in what we call the imperfect tense. In other words, what the scripture is saying is he was continually in existence before the world and before God created the world in which we live. So when he said, let there be light, Christ was. In fact, not only was he there, he created it himself as we'll see it. But I think even more significant than the use of the word was is he doesn't use the word became. It does not say in the beginning he became the word of God. He doesn't say that. He uses the word was because he was at the very beginning of all creation. I I like what Athanasius, the church father, said as you picture Christ. He said this, quote, There never was when he was not. I like that. There never was when he was not. In fact, you remember when Jesus said to the Jewish people in John eight fifty eight, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I what? Am. In fact, the philosophers of our own day asked the question, Why is there not nothing? And the answer is because, it, the answer is, is that in the beginning was the word. And so John establishes something very important for here. Christ is the eternal word. Now, you see that there in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word is just the Greek word logos. So in the beginning was the word, was the eternal logos, if you will. He existed before time began, before the earth was created. The word was, it always was. But why does Jesus, or why does John here, call Jesus the word? What is so significant about that title? And certainly, if we've grown up in the things of Christ, this statement comes to us again and again, in the beginning was the word. Well, why does he call him the word? Why does he, Greek word is just logos, Now, there's lots written here uh, uh, about this phrase, uh, pages and volumes, if you will, from Greek philosophical concepts as to what Philo said and to what the pre-Gnostics thought about the logos and the word. But I think the primary concept here of logos is certainly from the Old Testament, and it's certainly from the Jewish religion. 
In fact, the phrase, the word of God, appears all over the book of Genesis. Do you remember that? There, it kept saying, in fact, let me show you. Look over to Genesis 1. Here is the word. It's not just something here in the New Testament. Here, John is building off what we have out of the book of Genesis. Look over in Genesis chapter 1. Here's that phrase. And this phrase is all over both Genesis and the word of God. It's a phrase used in Genesis to speak of God acting in his creation. And the word spoken in Genesis 1 is the demonstration of the execution of the will of God. But look at Genesis 1, 6. And God said... There's the phrase, and you know it. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. When it says, and God said, that's the word speaking. God is speaking. He is the eternal word. Look down at Genesis 1, 9. And God said, there it is again, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. Look down at verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Look over at verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Look at verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, and on and on it goes. Here, it is God himself acting in bringing forth his creation by the spoken word. So in the beginning was the word. And often in the Old Testament, it's called the word of the Lord. And it was an expression of divine power and wisdom. But then you have the spoken word all over the Old Testament. It was by his word that God introduced the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15.1. It was by the word of the Lord that God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. It was by the word of the Lord that that he attended the building of Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 6. It was by the word of the Lord that he revealed um, God to Samuel. He pronounced judgment on the house of Eli by the word of the Lord. He counseled Elijah. 1 Kings 19, by the word of the Lord. He directed Israel through God's spokesman by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord was the agent of creation in Psalm 33. The word of the Lord revealed scripture to the prophets. Remember when the prophets kept saying it was by the word of the Lord. And so the world was created by by the word. And if you wonder who that word is, Here in John chapter 1, that word is Jesus Christ. So the God revealed in the Old Testament now is embodied in the New Testament in the person of Christ who now gives word, if you will, to the new covenant. He now instructs believers in the New Testament. He now reveals God to man in John 1, 18 and so forth. And he gives his church the instruction that they need. So look back at John now. Here, he's very clear. He says, in the beginning was the word. And then look what he says there. Fascinating statement. He says there, in the beginning was the word, that logos. And then this next phrase, and the word was with God. 
So in other words, he's taking you back to the very beginning. But it's not that he just began there because he was. But the word there in the beginning was the word. And the word, it literally means was with God. And it's, it's a fascinating phrase. It won't mean anything to you, but I always just love the phrase. It's called pros ton theon. In other words, in the beginning was the word and the word literally was toward God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was in face-to-face communion with God. And whenever you see that phrase, it is the ideal of, a, of two personal beings facing one another in intelligent discourse. In other words, before the world began, God and Christ, as the second member of the Trinity, were in a face-to-face relationship and communion with each other. And so from all eternity, and here's our first point, our preexistent Lord was in that face-to-face communion with God the Father. And it speaks, does that phrase, proston theon, of a deep, intimate, personal fellowship from all eternity. That's Jesus Christ. In the beginning was, he already was there, was the eternal word. And that word was with God in face-to-face communion. And then the next statement is just incredible. And I like to say we're on holy ground here. Not only has Christ existed from all eternity, that he existed in face-to-face communion with God the Father, but he's also declared to be God. Look down in your Bible again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. What a statement. Jesus, of course, down in verse 14, became flesh and dwelt amongst us. But here, John's so clear in his exposition of Scripture to tell you who Christ is. He always was. He's the eternal word. That word lived in unbroken fellowship with his father. And that word, it's so clear here, you can't get around it, was God. It is one of the greatest statements in all of the Word of God, if not the greatest statement in the Word of God regarding the deity, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Word, is God in the flesh. He's God the Son, and the implications are huge. I mean, because Jesus is the eternal Word, and because Jesus and the Father are one, then Jesus said, anybody who has seen me has seen what? The Father. Incredible. And so, beloved, if I pull this back together, the God who speaks in the Old Testament, who enters into a divine covenant with Israel, who spoke to the prophets, was none other than the God known in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ, who existed from the very beginning, is God. And the fact that Jesus Christ is deity, God in the flesh, is a non-negotiable for those who claim to be Christians. Now, of course, the heretics attack this verse. They attack this statement. One of the things that they say here, and I don't want to go into a full-orbed argument with you, is that when it says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, they would claim that there's no definite article there before theos, before God. There is no definite article. And so they would say the meaning here is that the word was, in their minds, God-like. Or you've heard a Jehovah Witness say that the word was, what do they say? 
a God. In fact, if I gave you and we pulled up here a Jehovah Witness translation, they would translate John 1, 1 in this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. And so they add that little phrase in there because they say that there's no definite article here. Now, listen, all I can tell you is that it's brilliant that there's no definite article. It means exactly what it says, that the word was God. Because, listen, had the writer, which it's either, you you say it's John, but had the Holy Spirit used the article with theos, he would have expressed the error with the third century heretic, a man by the name of Sibelius, who held that the Father and the Son were one person. Now listen, we say there's one God, but that's heresy to say that there's one person. It would contradict the previous statement where it said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God. It doesn't say that they're the same person. It says that that eternal second person of the Trinity was with God. So John could not now say that the Logos was identical with God. The Logos is not identified. You understand the logic here. He's not identified as God the Father, but he's identified with the same divine essence or attributes. And the absence of the article emphasizes the character of the divine quality of the Logos. And so Jesus, beloved, is one with the Father, fair, but he's distinct from the Father. He's not just an extension of the Father, and the distinction is in regard to personality, not essence. The Bible clearly says that the Word was God. In other words, he's of the same essence as God the Father. Both are equal in the Godhead, therefore both are to be honored, adored, and worshipped. I I like what Spurgeon said. He said, depend upon it, my hearer. You will never go to heaven unless you are prepared to worship Jesus Christ as God. That's who he is. So probably fair for me just to stop. Is that what you're confessing? That's the confession of of John here. That's the confession of the testimony of Scripture. So what's the point here? He's our preexistent Lord. He was. He's the eternal Word of God. He was with God in a face-to-face communion. And John declares, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was God. Now look what it says in 1-2. He, speaking of that eternal Word, was in the beginning with God. In other words, Christ did not come to have a relationship with God, but was with God from the very beginning. And the logic is this, only God is eternal. Jesus Christ is God. He is our preexistent Lord. He was before everything was created. Beloved, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that we embrace, that we own, that we love. So here's the first declaration of Christ's deity. It's his preexistence. Secondly, though, his omnipotence. His omnipotence. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, credible, and without him was not anything made that was made. Not only is Christ God in the flesh, 
but he is also the creator of everything that has come into being. In other words, he made it all. He made it all. John even declares that there is nothing that exists apart from him. So not only is he preexistent, but he's omnipotent in the set fact here stated so clearly, all things were made through him positively, and then he states it negatively, and without him, there was not anything that was made. In fact, you can get into the whole thing here about how, remember in the Old Testament, when God said he created the world, and we would teach that he created it ex nihilo, that he created it out of nothing? That's contrary to people who say that when, God, when Christ created, he was, he was using a substance. No, the, the thought is, everything was made through him, and there was not anything made that did not come through him. He created it ex nihilo. I mean, this is the teaching of scripture. Uh, Look over in the book of Colossians. Let me just show you this with your eyes. He's the creator. Look over to Colossians just for a second. Do you remember that wonderful statement in Colossians chapter 1 in verse 16? where he's talking in verse 15 of chapter 1, speaking of the person of Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is what we would call the imago Dei of the invisible God, that in the person of Christ, you have a visible image of the invisible God who is not seen. And then here, Paul says, he is the firstborn of all creation. You say, well, what do you mean the firstborn? Well, it doesn't mean he's the firstborn because he never was what? Born. He always existed. Well, then you say, well, what does it mean that he's the firstborn? The Greek word is prototokos there. It just means out of all that have been firstborn, he ranks the highest. In other words, going back to his incarnation when the word became flesh. But when you look at Christ, you're looking at God. And then look at 116. It says, for by him, speaking of Christ, All things were, what? Created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And then this statement, all things were created through him and what? For him. So listen, that's exactly what John says, which is what Paul says. So he's preexistent. He's omnipotent. Look over at the book of Hebrews. Just turn there to the right a few pages. I love this statement where the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1, in verse 1, long ago at many times in many ways. And here's that idea. God, I love that phrase, spoke. So why do you like that phrase? I like the phrase because of this. We have a God who talks. We have a God who communicates. And long ago, here the writer says, in many times and in many ways, and like over many years, I'm in the white spaces with many prophets. God spoke, if you will, to our fathers by the prophets. Look at one, two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And here's the phrase, through whom also he created what? The world. So listen, when we think about Christ, who is he? He's preexistent. He's omnipotent. He's the omnipotent creator. Now listen, only God is said to be the creator. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. Who does that make Christ then? 
God. He's God. I'm thinking of Psalm 102, verse 25, where the writer said of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Isaiah 40, 28, he says, have you not heard the Lord is everlasting God? He's the creator of the ends of the earth. And then it says in Psalm, excuse me, in Isaiah 45, 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. I am the Lord and there is no other. So listen, beloved, here's the wonderful testimony of Christ. This is why we need to share Christ. This is why when people say, isn't he really just another prophet? No, (laughs) he's got preexistence. Isn't he just another prophet? No, he's the creator of the world. He's the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. And if you go over to Proverbs 8, wisdom was aside here, God in the creation. And I think it's a personification of the person of Christ. So that in the end times, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, we'll be crying out, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So listen, God created the world, but here in John, Christ also created the world. Christ also is God. I was reading something this week. I, kind of, I thought it was kind of fascinating. Somebody said, and this might blow your mind a little bit, and it might not make any sense, and if it does, just email me and I'll send you my notes. But there are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy, okay? On the average, you got a galaxy. Inside that galaxy is 100 billion stars. And there are at least, if your mind can get around this, at least 100 million galaxies in known space. And Einstein believed that if we had scanned our, with our largest telescopes, only one billionth, is seen of, the, of space. And so somebody put this together. He says, this means that there are probably something like 10, and then you know how you go to the powers, okay? And they're talking about how many stars then are there in the universe if there's 1 billion stars in the average galaxy and that there's maybe at least 100 million galaxies. How many stars are there? And somebody said, if you added that up, that would be like 10 if with 27 zeros attached to it, which, which is called 10 octillion. So you think, how many stars are there? Well, we might say in science, there are 10 octillion. Then you might ask the question, how much is that? Well, do the math this way. 1,000 thousands is a million. 1,000 millions is a what? A billion. 1,000 billions is a trillion. 1,000 trillions is a quadrillion. 1,000 quadrillions is a quintillion. And I know you know all this, okay? 1,000 quintillions is a sextillion. And 1,000 sextillion 
is a septillion, and 1,000 septillion is an octillion. So 10 octillion is 10 to the 27 zeros behind it. And I'm telling you, Jesus made it all. He made it all. He made it all. And and so here, when you have a guy like Stephen Hawking, the known atheist at Oxford, who said that, quote, the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe, end of quote. Listen, well, here before us in the word of God, that theory is a person and that person is Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, listen, the statements regarding God as creator are now in John's gospel clearly affirming the deity of Jesus Christ, that he's not just a man, not just a prophet, not just uh, somebody who was a lunatic, as Lewis would say, he's God in the flesh. What a wonderful, wonderful privilege. God in Genesis created the world out of nothing. John says here, without him, there was not anything made that was made. And what that means is that the entire universe owes its existence and is dependent on all things to the word of God and that the word is sustaining and upholding all things in the universe. So there's his word on his preexistence, a word on his omnipotence, and then thirdly here and finally, a word on his aseity. His aseity. Look back to John chapter 1. It's a little phrase there, and we're going to catch some of these themes as we go forward. But it, it says there, do you see that in 1 4? In him was what? Life. Okay, stop there just for a second. In him was life, and then it goes on to say the life was the light of the men. In him was life, and we call this truth theologically aseity, okay? Or to put it in another term, it would describe his self-existence. So you could say his pre-existence, his omnipotence, thirdly, his self-existence, but I think it's good for us to learn a theological concept, his aseity. It means that he has life in himself, in him, Verse 4 was life. Let let me show you one other scripture. We'll unpack it in in weeks to come. Look over at John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, and I'm addressing here a saity. Remember when, when, when Jesus was speaking, he says, Truly I say to you, and I'm in 525, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who here will live. And now this verse. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have, what? Life in himself. That's aseity. You do not have life in yourself. All creation outside of the Godhead receives life from outside of itself. In other words, creation did not begin its life. One amoeba did not say to another amoeba 10 billion years ago, let's get together and become two, okay? Creation did not begin its life. God did. 
And God derives his, his life from within himself, depending on nothing for his life. We would say of God that he is self-existent. We would say that is the doctrine of the aseity of God. That is why God can make the statement in Exodus 3, 14, I am who I, what? Am. And it's even there in the grammar. He has life in himself. And incredibly, John now states that Jesus is the source of everything and everyone who lives. And the logic would be only God is self-existent and now Christ is said to have life in himself. That too makes him what? God. Now, now look back in John 1. It says there, in him was life. And I love this phrase. And the life was the light of men. Now, when it, back up there, when it talks about that he's life, it, it could mean a couple things. In him was life. He's, he's either the source of life. And it, and it could either be speaking about physical life or it could be addressing spiritual life. And people get confused as to, well, which one is it? When it says in him was life, what kind of life is he talking about? Well, biblically, he created the physical world, and so he created life, Genesis 1.1. But Jesus here, when it's talking about his life, in him was life, I really believe that he's getting at that Christ is the source of spiritual life that we receive from him when we believe on him. So it's an amazing thought. In him was life. And I think it's spiritual life. And the reason I do is, I don't think it's hard. The Greek word there for life is the Greek word zoe, okay? Sometimes people name their kid after that, and you know that that means life, okay? And whenever you see zoe, it's spiritual life. It's usually in contrast to another word. The other word is called bios, or bios as we would know it as a Greek word. That refers to physical life in Scripture. And so here, he uses the word Zoe. In other words, he's getting to the issue here that according to Ephesians 2, before Jesus Christ came into our life in 2.1, we were dead in our trespasses and what? Sin. You're spiritually dead, right? In other words, there's nothing in you that's showing on the spiritual EKG. Oh, you may be physically alive, but spiritually you're dead dead to the things of God, your spiritual EKG is a flat line. And the only way that anybody gets saved then is God being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us, what? Alive, right? He made us alive together with Christ. So I think what John is saying him here is he's not only addressing the self-existence of Christ, the aseity of Christ, but he's saying in him was spiritual life, and that's why we must be born, what, again. So maybe I should say to you, have you been born again? I don't ever assume that in this crowd. Have you come to a place where you recognized your deadness, recognized the person of Christ, recognized your sin, beat on your breast, fall down before him, and ask him to breathe life into you. Because that's what everyone needs. In fact, look over at John 10.10. I mean, without Christ, nobody's truly living. 
Look at John 10.10, and these will be unpacked in the weeks to come. I love this statement that Jesus gives there when he said in 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have what? Life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. But there it is. I came that they may have life. What kind of life is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual life. He's talking about being born again. He's talking about that only the life in Christ can offer. Listen, it is a miserable world outside of Christ. A miserable world outside the life of Christ. In fact, I was reading a little bit on Stephen Hawking, the known atheist. And of course, they had the the movie come out. I haven't seen the movie, but um, that man who played his character. And I read one testimony of this. They said the the problem with that movie is that... um, you know, Stephen Hawking was confined in a wheelchair, and then he's become one of the most known atheists all over the globe, saying that there is no God, but he's been confined to this wheelchair since early on, and they said the movie was a bit hagiography. In other words, it glorified his life. When you really begin to peel back the layers of his life, this was a very unhappy man who took on the character of God. And I just think when you look at this phrase, in him was life, in him is spiritual life. The only way your children will ever be happy is to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The only way that your children or your grandchildren are gonna truly know joy is to find the life that was in Christ. And he came and he came to give us this kind of life. The thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. But when he comes, he comes to give us life. And that light was the light of men. Look back in the text there. Those are two almost interchangeable words in verse 4. This life was the light of men. In other words, in essence, life and light cannot be separated. Essentially, they're the same concept. Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he's the light of the world, but he himself will give the light of life. It's Of course, that great light was pictured in Jesus Christ who has been made in the image of God. And here, the glory of the gospel in 2 Corinthians is in the person of Christ. So light is God's manifest life in the person of Christ. It's often contrasted with darkness. And, you know, when you look in Scripture, light speaks intellectually, okay? It refers to truth in Psalm 119, uh, darkness um, is falsehood. And so when he gives light, if you will, he's intellectually bringing truth to the heart and to the mind. Darkness is always being exposed in the darkness and bound in the darkness. Light in the scripture refers to holiness and uh, darkness always relates to sin. That's why show me somebody who loves their sin and I'll show you somebody who's miserable. Show me somebody who loves Christ and his light will seek the light, will know the joy of following the Lord. And so here these principles are so important and you see this. But look what it says in five. This light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This light is shining in a very, very dark world, a satanic world system that is in opposition to God, in opposition to his people. But the phrase is interesting. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness, read it carefully, 
at least from the ESV, has not overcome it. It means this, that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has never put it out. In other words, it's still shining is in the present tense. His, the light of Christ is still shining. In fact, 1 John 2.8 says the darkness is passing away, but the true light is already shining. And what John is saying here by the authority of the word of God is that the darkness cannot be, uh, it, it cannot be quenched. The darkness can't, cannot quench the light. It can't extinguish the light. It can't eclipse the light that Christ gives. He shines in the darkness, and the darkness, it says here, has not overcome it. In other words, it never will. The present tense is it's still shining. So listen, beloved. What do you say about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you entered into that life Have you entered into that joy? And I think I've shared with you many times that for me, that's when I was 14. So what happened before you were 14? I'm a zombie. (laughs) I'm a walking zombie. You say, but Scott, you're alive. I know, but I'm a walking zombie, no different than a dead fish going downstream. There was no life in Christ in me. In fact, far from there being life in Christ in me, as a 14-year-old young man, I had my fist in his face because I didn't want him to tell him what to do. I I didn't want him to control my life. I didn't want him to take rulership of my life. I didn't want him to declare what I needed to be and do. And so I always put the Lord off until he was so wonderfully merciful to me and opened my eyes. And you know what? Well, look at that. He imparts this life sovereignly. What do you mean sovereignly? Well, just look for a second. Look over at John chapter 6. He's had a sovereignly given this will be, that will be a fun time. It says there in 637, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never, what? Cast out. In other words, the Father's given to the Son a group of people. Verse 39, and this is, and this is the will of men who sent, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me and will raise it up on what? The last day. That's why your, your, your salvation is secured. If you're in here in Christ, he gave you God the Father to God the Son as a love gift before the foundation of the world. And if God the Father gave you to God the Son and God the Son died for you, then he's never going to lose you because he began a good work in you, is going to complete it until the day of Christ. But this is sovereignly given. And so those who savingly believe on the gospel have life. So have you believed on the gospel? Look back at John 1, 12. We'll look at this next week or maybe right after Easter. In John 1, 12, he says there, but to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. You've got to believe on his name. Look, look over at John 3, verse 15. You know that text well. John three fifteen. Whoever believes in him may have eternal, what? Life. In other words, if you put your trust and hope in this person of Christ, you have eternal life. 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, shall, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have, what? Eternal life. And then you know the contrast there. Go over to John 3.36. Whoever believes in the son has, what? 
eternal life. Now watch this. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see what? Life. They remain in a state of spiritual deadness and the wrath of God remains on them. So listen, you've got to come to a place where you bow your knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ because of who he is. You say, well, why would I do that? Well, he's preexistent. Secondly, he's omnipotent. And thirdly, it's the doctrine of aseity. He has life in himself, and he gives that life to you if you've put your trust in him. But you've got to put your trust in him. You've got to believe. You've got to look away from yourself, look away from your deeds, look away from your righteousness, look away from your self-stylized life, and bow your knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and you will know the hope and the joy of life eternal. I I love that statement. Do you remember when C.S. Lewis made that famous statement? He said of Christ, he said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He, he, He said this. He said he would either be a lunatic, lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else the devil of hell. He said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. He said, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon or you can fall at your feet and call him Lord and God. But Lewis said, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. Listen, Jesus Christ, beloved, is God in the flesh. He is at the center and we exist to glorify God. That's our purpose statement by exalting the Savior. And the only way we can exalt the Savior is to know him. And that's why we're teaching on him. So here's three declarations of his deity, his preexistence, his omnipotence, and his aseity. Bruce Milne, the commentator, said of Jesus Christ shares the nature of God. I like how he said it. He said, we are called to worship him without cessation, obey him without hesitation, love him without reservation, and serve him without interruption to God be the glory. 